1: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY.
0: APY can change at any time.
2: Welcome to the Bloomberg P&L podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz.
1: Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading
2: floor. Find the Bloomberg P&L podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud and Bloomberg.com.
1: Well, the Sinclair Broadcast Group is not very well known, but it has 173 broadcast TV stations, mostly in small markets like Sioux City, uh, Fresno, Little Rock, some bigger ones, Pittsburgh, Salt Lake City, and Washington. Uh, But they have increasingly taken a rather conservative bent. Felix Gillette, uh, a Bloomberg Businessweek reporter, wrote a story about this that was truly fascinating. And Felix, first, can you just start with how you came to even write about this?
3: Yeah, well, it's one of those fascinating companies that kind of flies under the radar. Um, the way I got interested was when they announced their $4 billion acquisition of Tribune Media uh, in May. And I was sitting around with a couple of my colleagues and we're like, How come we don't know much about Sinclair or who runs it or what the culture of the company is like? And for a very important and influential media company, um, they managed to really keep their name out of the news as much as possible.
2: Tell us about David Smith. He's the chairman of the company.
3: Right. Uh, Him and his three brothers inherited the company from their father, uh, Julian back in the uh, who started the company originally in the 1970s and for the first you know couple decades of the company uh, it was a really small regional business and then in the 90s David Smith really started going out and acquiring other stations and they've been the most aggressive acquirer of, of broadcast TV stations to the point where now they're not only the largest station already station group already but now uh, you know with the uh, acquisition of Tribune Media They're going to be by far, in a way, the largest uh, broadcaster in the country.
1: How did they get around antitrust rules and FCC regulations? Well, it's amazing
3: because, you know, uh, David Smith uh, and his brothers are all big supporters of Republican politicians and conservative causes. Uh, if Hillary Clinton had won the election, there's no way this Tribune media deal would have gone through. Uh, The FCC uh, would not have allowed it. And basically what happened is when Trump won uh, his nomination to run the FCC, uh, pretty soon after taking over, changed a rule that limited uh, ownership of local media companies. And as soon as that rule was changed, and this arcane uh, rule was re-emplaced, then... That allowed uh, Sinclair to buy Tribune Media, and it's the biggest acquisition in the company's history.
2: Felix, describe Mm -hmm. for people how the television business works when you own a station and are an affiliate of a network, and then your ability to insert local programming.
3: Yeah, well, you know, basically the station owner, um, even though the branding is from the network like abc nbc fox cw the station group that owns the station like sinclair uh, has a lot of influence and sway over the newsroom, which is really what creates the programming. So, the local, you know, your morning no- news, your evening news, your local nightly news, uh, all of that is controlled by a station group that, you know, that reports to the station group. And so, what's amazing about Sinclair is they've really pioneered this method of injecting essentially centralized, conservative political punditry into all of these small stations around the country.
1: So uh, does Sinclair have any direct relationship with President Trump and some of his cohorts like uh, Steve Bannon and others, or is it just sort of a tangential relationship based on the ties of the founders of Sinclair?
3: Uh, You know, initially, during the start of the 2016 presidential campaign, they threw their support behind Um, Ben Carson, who, like David Smith and his brothers, uh, is from the Baltimore area. Um, But once Ben Carson dropped out, they really uh, threw their support behind Trump. They did a lot of, uh, you know, these centralized news stories that were sent out to the stations, criticizing Hillary Clinton. Uh, They brokered a deal with Trump and his campaign to get more access for the reporters in exchange for not uh, really criticizing uh, those interviews at all and running them in full. And, yeah, they've basically worked pretty hard to, um, to align themselves with trump um, most recently and probably most importantly they hired uh, boris epstein who was a uh, you know an aide to the president and one of his uh, real surrogates on tv throughout the campaign they hired boris uh, after a brief stint in the white house they hired him to be their chief political analyst and he now does you know three uh segments a week many of which just echo White House talking points, and each of those segments is then sent out to every single newsroom around the country. And Sinclair they're runs. called
2: what, in the in the terms They're of called the, must-runs. Must-runs. And, runs. Even
3: if you're, and it, this creates a lot of tension at the stations, particularly in big areas. Um, you know, They've had a lot of friction with, for instance, Como TV, which is the station that they bought in the Seattle area. It's a very progressive city. It's a liberal viewership. And when you talk to the people at these stations, they think- this is crazy. We're doing our local newscast and all of a sudden we have to cut, you know, 2 minutes out of the evening news to go to this, you know, former Trump spokesperson you know, to do a segment about how great Trump is.
1: Of course, it only matters if people watch and real quick, are people watching? Is listener is, is viewership going up?
3: They have a big aggregate audience. I don't think the audiences are going up and typically they don't even really with their stations in these markets, they don't really try and have the top station ratings-wise, they usually just, um, you know, buy more stations in the market.
2: Well, uh, it hasn't helped the stock. Stock's up 4% so far this year. Thanks very much, uh, Felix Gillette. Great story. I encourage everyone to read about uh, Sinclair Broadcasting.
1: Well, I am very pleased to uh, welcome Cord Christensen. He is co-founder, chief executive officer, and chairman of Pet IQ, the Boise, Idaho-based uh, company that just dis- distributes pet supplies and uh, just did its IPO. Its shares are up more than four percent on its first day of trading cord uh congratulations on the successful IPO I wanted just to get a sense of, from you first of all before we get into the actual financing uh about pet IQ and what the business model is and what the growth potential is at this point uh, that you
4: see yeah thank you we uh here at PetIQ, IQ are very focused on one thing, and that is providing better availability of the best pet health care items and by making those available through major retailers across the United States. And uh, the company founded day one with that focus. We've never changed that focus. And ultimately, it's a, a very large market that's growing extremely well already. But there's a significant number of pets out there in the country that do not get great health care. And we think because all pets end up buying their products through our customers. We have the best opportunity to help educate consumers, bring in those, those consumers that are not providing that, and ultimately grow the market significantly for all people that participate in it. We think it's great for our supplier partners, for the company, its shareholders, and ultimately for consumers and their pet owners.
2: Is, uh, is this going to be a uh, shot at veterinary uh, offices? Because isn't that where most people or most uh, medication for pets is, is currently uh, purchased?
4: Yeah, we sure hope not. We built the company hoping that we would grow the total market and help everybody be successful in it. And and we've seen, you know, we've been in business now since 2009. And as a company, as we've grown, there definitely was early days, I think, some people that had the fear of the unknown and definitely thought that could be the case. But what we've seen is the market's growing, and we're definitely seeing those new pets coming into it. And the veterinarians have grown both the visits and the product business that they have in their clinics every single year we've been in business, and we hope to continue to drive the success in the veterinarian's office. We view them absolutely as a critical part of the partnership here at Pet IQ and want to support them in every way we can.
2: Okay, I got that. But you know, you've got three main categories of business, right? I mean, you've got the prescription medication, you've got the over-counter medication, and then the health and wellness products, correct? That is Correct. Okay. So the, I'm looking at, let's say, the prescription medication. I mean, I got to think that if it's less expensive at you know, Walmart or PetSmart or Kroger or whatever, that that's where people are going to go uh, as opposed to just saying, okay, give me whatever you prescribed and I'll pay for it.
4: Yeah, I think that definitely could be the first perception. There's definitely going to be some people that say they're going to go there and buy their pet prescriptions where they buy their human prescriptions. But there's been access to pet prescriptions outside of the veterinarian market for a very long time. You have great companies like 1-800-PET-MEDS that have been selling in that manner for a very long time with, with pricing that's been very, very established to be a saving. So we think we can peacefully coexist. We think we can drive a lot more people into the space and, and ultimately the veterinarian still gets the first meeting they get the opportunity to be with the patient first and that patient has the opportunity to buy their products there so more times than not they'll choose to buy at the veterinarian but there will be those that want to come and get their pet prescriptions and their over-the-counter medications to our customers and we view it as a very creative opportunity for everybody that's in the industry.
1: Cord, you know, we had a guest on a couple weeks ago who was saying that there have been studies done that show that people love their pets more than their children. Uh, you know, I have to wonder, just uh, in light of the increasing love and emphasis on pets, whether the uh, entire amount of spending that people uh, have every year on their pet health care, whether that's rising at an exponential price. Can you can you give us a sense of that?
4: Yeah, I think, um, and I mentioned it uh, a number of times throughout my career, but it's been really interesting. For two years in a row now, there's been more pets brought home to U.S. households than actually babies. And so if you just think of the trend as that continues to compound, as those pets year over year do that, we're going to see wait, a growing population. Wait, 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 population. just pull up,
1: but, I'm just like trying to comprehend that. The past two years, there have been more pets brought home than babies in the U.S.?
4: For the first time in our history of our country, <sighs> two years in a row.
1: Oh, my gosh. Okay, go cool on. Sorry. <laughs>
4: No, so I think it's it's very obvious that with all the new, you know, really pet parents, I think we can truly call them pet parents at this point when you start seeing those kind of trends and those kind of things going on in our country. We have a, a customer base that ultimately has a hundred percent of the pets in this country go to major retail outlets and online stores to find their pet supplies. We're at the front and in the very, very beginning helping educate them on where they can get quality health care and then remember every single person that's going to come back and buy a prescription drug at a retailer first is going to go to a veterinarian's office and have that visit and so again we think we're very balanced in providing incremental growth for the manufacturers in that space for the veterinarians and ultimately just expanding the pie and if there's more pets coming home than babies we're in a very good tailwind as far as a market and a market that's already growing at a six percent CAGR who knows what the potential growth rate could be as we continue to drive that awareness.
2: Yeah, I think the estimate is for, what, about a $9 billion market. Uh, that was in the SEC filing, a $9 billion market in uh, 2019 for uh, PET medications. Thanks very much for joining us. Uh, Cord Christensen is the co-founder and the chief executive of Pet PetIQ. Uh, their stock begins trading. It is uh, trading right now on the uh, New York Stock Exchange. Thanks very much for being with us. And uh, just a note, uh, Lisa Abramowitz, you know, one of the things that you, you mentioned to having to do with the number of pets and so on, as part of their uh, filing, they say about 79% of dog owners and 77% of cat owners view their pets as members of the family.
1: Wow. Well, those shares are trading on the Nasdaq for. I beg your
2: pardon. Yes.
1: Yes, but yeah, it's just amazing. All right. Well, let's uh, let's take a look at another story that caught our eye today. Yalman Onaran is the author of it. He's a senior writer in banking and finance for Bloomberg News. And it was taking a look at the pretty incredible profits that we have seen at the biggest U.S. banks, despite these regulations that have ostensibly been holding them back. Uh, Yalman, can you just give us a sense of how big these
5: profits have been? Um, they're almost as big as they were in 2007, which is pretty amazing because that was a good year before everything <laughs> fell apart, as you remember. Right, and
1: it was less regulated. This is the crucial point, right? Because a lot of these uh, Dodd Frank regulations had not yet been implemented. It was pretty regulated. much
5: unregulated, you can say. I mean, they—they, okay. they, you know—they um, tried. There were people who tried to regulate the derivatives market. They were told to to be hands off. Um, capital rules were revised, so basically banks could go on without. Any capital meaning you don't really need equity; just borrow as much as you can. So, um, so their leverage ratios reached you know f- f- one to fifty at times. Um, so there was hardly any regulation, and they were they were making a lot of money. And now there's all this regulation; they're constantly complaining about, and they're making about the same amount of money.
2: So what does that tell you about their desire to have the uh, chains
5: of regulatory authority loosened? So, I mean, we have to sort of put it in context, you know, as, as the banker, um, the, the bank lobbyist told me who's quoted in this story well, okay, but the GDP in nominal terms is bigger than it was. So the number is not one-to-one comparison. We we're, we're, we're basically got back to the records, but it's a bigger GDP. Typically what happens with banks, their lending and activity goes up as GDP goes up nominally. So if GDP grows 2% nominally, regardless of realist, real terms, everything in the bank's assets do too, but they haven't. So in a way, we're not where we were in 2007 but we're we're getting very close well,
1: so we've heard a lot about how uh, certain businesses have become less profitable talking about debt trading in particular some of their prop trading books uh as well as equity trading which has been uh losing its sort of revenue abilities for a while so what's behind the growth in profits
5: um well i mean they have been lending, <laughs> unlike, so, so- unlike, unlike uh, the common misperception. They have been lending more and more. I mean, again, you make comparisons to before the crisis, lending was growing faster. But then a lot of people will say, God, it was growing too fast, right? There were all this subprime stuff that everybody well, was borrowing. But,
1: but, but lending is not all the same, right? I mean, when you talk about lending, are we talking about uh, revolving lines of credit and straight corporate loans? Or are these more complicated structures that could potentially uh, have some serious Problems that have sort of embedded leverage. I mean, are we talking about just the banks doing their function as basically going out there and providing capital to businesses of all sizes and letting them uh, go out and create the American dream?
5: They are doing their function. The, the 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 lending that's helped, and it's and this is interesting because although this is this is something we thought about, what didn't really include in the story, um, the the spreads. I mean, the credit, the interest rates are so low, so to be able to actually make decent profits in an in such a horrible interest rate environment is pretty amazing too but the if you look at net interest margin compared with now and and pre crisis the gap isn't that bad so despite interest rates being so low banks have managed to keep improve recently they it came down because nobody was borrowing for so for several years it, 2010 was really bottom the interest interest margins really went down because When there's no loan demand, you can't charge for it. You know, it doesn't matter what interest rate is. If people aren't borrowing, you have to keep it low. But now there's demands more and more. Demand has picked up. People are borrowing. Companies are borrowing. And the banks are now notching up that interest rate. And they are able to make the spread that they used to make before the crisis, which is very healthy. So, and trading has has bumped up to. I mean, they you know, this this quarter was not a great quarter, clearly second quarter everything went down because because everything's quiet. We don't like quiet. We want a lot of scare, fear, Brexit and 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 World War 3. No, we don't want that. But um but you know, trading for for several quarters really improved. I mean, for some banks, five quarters in a row, they saw massive Increases in trading. Morgan Stanley was doing great. Um, you know, J.P. Morgan has just been grabbing market share. Um, U.S. banks are doing great. European banks, not so, but that helps the U.S. banks. Yaman, yeah, I, I wonder if you could just briefly just uh,
2: describe uh, the banks paying out uh, interest, let's say, on CDs. They, you're not going to get anything on in, in a CD, right? We're talking maybe 1%. At the current
5: rate? Not even one. No, not even one. No, I mean, I was looking at, at interest rates the banks pay the other day and a chart um, and what happened to them. Um, um, and there was a study, um, I forget, maybe Fed or something, or the FDIC, but interest rates they pay their depositors is uh, around zero. So that has been, and, and it hasn't picked up even as the Fed has picked up in its interest rate, right? So it's not even connected. That's because. There's still no alternative. I mean, I talked about lending. When there's demand for borrowing, you can jack that up. But deposits, you need to jack up the deposit rate when you're competing with others. That is not there because money markets are no longer in the game. So they don't have to. They don't feel like they have to jack that up. No pressure for that.
2: No pressure. Thanks very much, Yaman Onoran. As always, senior writer, banking and finance. Check out his story at Bloomberg.com. Well, you know, the uh, Trump administration, as well as Bill Schuster, he is a uh, congressman from Pennsylvania, are promoting the idea of turning the air traffic control system into a uh government, uh, well, a government-authorized private corporation that would be uh, uh, responsible for the air traffic control system in the United States. And here to tell us more about this topic on the airline industry is an expert, Bob Crandall. He is the former chief executive of American Airlines. And uh, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Mr. Crandall, thanks for being with us.
6: Hi, Tim. Glad to be here.
2: All right. So, you know, uh, I was going to give them your long history. You know, you worked at TWA. You were, (laughs) you know, uh, American Airlines and so on, I wonder if you could just start off by framing the conversation about the government's participation in the airline industry, because we used to have a regulated airline industry, and now we don't, sort of.
6: Well, that's right, Tim. We used to have a regulated industry in the sense that the uh, the CAB controlled where airlines could fly and how much they could charge. All that went away in 1978. Uh, the FAA then has the task of uh, establishing safety standards and at the same time has the task of physically operating the air traffic control system. And what this whole thing is about is that around the world, more, more than 50 countries, uh, almost every other advanced country, and particularly Canada just to our north, have taken the actual operation of the system out of government and have put it into what are called ANSPs, Air Navigation Service Providers, which support themselves by charging fees rather than supporting it with taxes as the United States does. It has proven to be a very, very beneficial change. Those systems are cheaper. Uh, And most importantly, I think, Tim, they make better use of the airspace, which is a limited asset. So this is something that has been under discussion in the United States since uh, Bill Clinton's time. Al Gore was the first advocate of it. And uh, in the meantime, virtually every other country's done it, and I hope we will soon get on and do it.
2: All right. So if we were to do that, uh, the board that would oversee this new corporation, those members would be selected by the airlines, correct?
6: No, 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 they wouldn't. In fact, uh, general aviation would have a seat. Airports would have a seat. Uh, the government would have the, the government would have a seat. The, the uh, controllers union would have a seat. The uh, in the board overall, there's only one of the only one seat is it would be the passenger airlines. There's one for cargo airlines. Uh, there's one for charter. But operators. would they all have to
2: be part of uh, Airlines for America? That's the sort of umbrella group, no. right? No.
6: No, the umbrella group is only the passenger airlines, Tim. So the Airlines for America and the airlines themselves uh, get one seat on this board and everybody else gets a seat as well Uh, which is which is i think perfectly appropriate look the the airlines because they operate most of the airplanes and most of all, all the big airplanes will pay most of the fees but the system will be dramatically more efficient and the consequence is that the airlines are willing to take on the task of paying these fees because they'll be able to operate more planes to more places with fewer delays.
2: <clears throat> so, with this uh, potentially new uh, system for air traffic uh, control, it, do you believe that the actual service of passenger uh, air, aircraft will will improve?
6: Oh, absolutely. Now, not look. We're not talking about on board service. No, no, I understand. We're, we're,
2: but just on time yeah, service.
6: we're talking about. We are, uh, Listen, fifty percent, Tim. Tim, fifty percent of the delays that occurred last year were caused by congestion in the, in, the, in, in, in the air traffic control system. I mean, we are still using technologies that, were, that are World War technologies. We use radar, for example, instead of GPS to say where planes are. And because we don't use GPS to locate every airplane, airplanes have to remain on the equivalent. Think of a series of highways in the sky. And the, airplane, the airplanes have to fly down those highways to designated endpoints, rather than rather than keeping track of where every airplane is all the time, which is both way more efficient and at the same time safer. So the consequence is, if you could use all of the airspace in an optimal sort of a way, there would be fewer delays, and you could have more flights, and they could go to more places more often. It's and and the, the the real big impact of this PIM. Is that this is going to have a dramatically beneficial impact on the U.S. economy? As you know, travel and tourism is a big employer. If, air, if airplanes can fly more more flights, and they, if they can incur fewer delays, more people are going to travel. More people are going to stay in hotels, eat in restaurants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera. So, I think this is going to be a big stimulant to the to the u s. economy. And again, it's something we got to get on with and get done
2: all right. So,, uh, Bob, I want you to turn your attention now to what goes on in the plane as far right. as customer service is concerned and also the what goes on in the airports for that you've obviously seen many of the recent stories and watched maybe perhaps the the videos of of the treatment of various uh, passengers <laughs> what goes through your mind when you see that and you hear these stories where, where are the people in charge of the actual airlines why they're not walking around like someone would walk around an office and see how things are doing
6: well, Pim, you, you know, look, I, I spent a long, a long time in the industry and, and at one company that I was particularly fond of. And the reality is, when I see stories like that, I'm outraged. Uh, obviously, they should not happen. Uh, the pop- you were fa- I know that you were famous for actually,
2: you would walk through terminals and you would take the actual planes on a regular basis and you would make comments and you would talk to actual passengers.
6: Yes, absolutely, and I spent a lot of time talking to employees. And, in fact, I think if if more of the people who run the airlines today did more of that, I think there would be fewer of those awful incidents. But let me let me say this by way of, of, of mitigation and explanation, I guess. Uh, what we've got today is an overcrowded system. Our airports are out of date. Our air traffic control system is out of date, which we've been talking about. The consequences, as demand grows, the airports get more and more crowded, the airplanes get more and more crowded, and all that crowding and confusion is very unpleasant. Now, the problem, here's the problem. We used to have less crowding and less confusion, and we used to have more regulation. And as deregulation has occurred, people, the, the traveling public generally has said, look, I am going to select the cheapest flight. That is generally what I'm going to choose. That's the way I'm going to choose. And the consequence of that is that the amount of money available to accommodate passengers in, in a in a non-crowded environment in a more pleasant way is very limited. So, I, I look, I'm, I'm not happy with the state of uh, the airline uh, service, industry service, and I don't think people in the industry are either. On the other hand, if you look at the number of people carried, and the tremendous safety of the organization, I think you say, well, they're not doing as well as I'd like them to do in terms of service, but they're doing a pretty darn good job of keeping people safe.
2: Well, thanks very much uh, for giving us a good picture of the airline industry. Bob Crandall, he is the former chief executive of American Airlines.